This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I can't quite put my finger on it, but the topic of this week's movies feels just a little bit familiar, wouldn't you say? Maybe even more than a little bit, Sarah. I can tell that you're all a flutter about what we're going to be talking about on this episode. I do love me some vampire movies. Listeners, we are going to be reviewing not one, but two vampire films this week. First up is our review of the new release, Renfield, which is out this Friday. Then we're going to be discussing Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, a film that's near and dear to Sarah's heart, and we'll see if it's near and dear to mine as well. I'm looking forward to talking about that one in our Watchlist segment. Always happy to go to bat for another vampire movie here on episode 377 of Seeing and Believing. Would you like to introduce yourself to the group? I'm the Prince of Malaysia. Some call me the Dark One. Others, the Lord of Death. (laughs) However, to most, I am known simply as... Redfield's boss! I am Dracula. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. Yes, we're here on episode 377 of Seeing and Believing, and... We knew it was going to happen eventually. We knew there was going to be a vampire episode Mm -hmm. sometime in our future. That day has arrived. Vampire rules. Once they're in, they're never leaving. That's just how it works. I think we established that about a year ago, the last time we talked about vampire movies. So the wheel has come right back around. It's true. You, you, once they've been invited in, you can't exterminate them. You can't push them out. They're here to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have any of the appropriate decor. You know, it's springtime. Right after Easter, so no like spider webbed pipe organs around. No bats, thankfully. I certainly hope Fingers there aren't crossed. any bats in here. I'll keep my eye on the corners of the room. Listeners, we are going to be talking about two vampire movies, so I hope you've got your fake things ready. We are going to be rounding things off with a bang because we're going to be talking about one of Sarah's very favorite vampire movies ever, mm-hmm. ever, with our discussion of Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Yes. Uh, But we're going to go with the new release, the new vampire, Mm -hmm. uh, with our review of Renfield, which is out this weekend. Yeah, it's, I guess, the new vampire kid on the block. It certainly feels like that tonally, although we can get into it. So Renfield is very loosely inspired by the characters in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Renfield tells the story of the titular character, Renfield, played by Nicholas Holt, who has spent decades in servitude to Count Dracula, played here by Nicholas Cage. As a familiar, Renfield must clean up the vampire's messes, solve his problems, deliver his meals, and otherwise do his dark bidding. But after spending time in a codependence anonymous group, Renfield starts to wonder if there just might be more to life outside of Dracula's influence. And so... Kevin, one of the things that I wanted to just kind of kick off our discussion with was this movie talks about characters choosing to be heroes. It's a repeated theme throughout the film. So they're able to choose to be heroes rather than villains. And did you find Renfield's personal journey from codependency to heroic personhood to be compelling? No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I do like Nicholas Holt in general, and I think he's... Uh, a good fit for this role. He's charming. Um, he does a great job of uh, playing the the comedy in 
uh, you know, kind of a put upon every man who, in this case, being put upon means procuring victims for Dracula to devour. And he's been doing it for over a century at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nicholas Holt's really good at kind of playing that, you know, that guy who just, he just really needs a hug, but also he's really messed up. Yeah. And I enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't think that anything that the movie is really doing with the arc as written is really working here. So there's a a part early in the film where there's, it's a conversation between Renfield and Dracula, his master uh, and Dracula is, is monologuing and he talks about how he is the only person who cares for Renfield truly because he's rescued Renfield from the human world with all of its confusing morality and into a world where the only thing that matters is making Dracula happy. And obviously that's supposed to be uh, kind of a foil for what Renfield actually, the journey that he goes on throughout this film. The The idea that the, the real world is full of confusing moralities, obviously we're not supposed to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Morality exists, Renfield deep down is a good guy. He just needs to get out from Dracula's thumb. Um, but I think that the way that morality is por- actually kind of portrayed in this movie, just embodied in that journey that Renfield takes is kind of confusing, or maybe it, it would be better to say it's confused. Mm-hmm. The morality is very confused. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like Renfield really has to reckon at all with mor- the morality of his actions or what it actually means to be a hero. Basically, to be a hero here is the sort of heroism that's familiar to anyone who's seen a Marvel movie. You have superpowers, and you use them for good rather than for evil, and you fight the bad guy, and you win. That's kind of the... That's the heroism that this movie is interested in, and it's not a kind of heroism that I think is all that interesting in the end. It's a very surface-level approach towards heroism, I think, and I think that's partly the problem with the entire movie as a whole, not just Renfield's hero's journey from being one of the bad guys to being one of the good guys. I think the movie, that feels like a very straightforward moral journey to me. And it feels as though the movie is treating it as a very cut and dried, you stop killing people and then you move into a bright, shiny apartment and you turn your life around. And you can do that all through the power of just saying no to the people who are putting you upon, I suppose. And I think we can get into that a little bit more because I have problems with that aspect of the movie as well. But I think the movie as a whole is just so focused on the exterior and the easy answer to what's going on that it's not really interested in digging deep and getting into, well, why is the morality of the outside world remotely confusing? Because to me, it seems as though it's really just a question of choosing to be a hero in a difficult position. And even the difficult positions are just binary choices of are you going to do the right thing or are you going to be a coward? And that happens repeatedly throughout the film. There's a side plot here that we haven't mentioned at all in which um, a traffic cop played by Aquafina also kind of folds into Renfield's story. Um, she's chasing down drug lords in New Orleans. Yes, this is part of the same movie that we just summarized at the top here. Um, That piece also feels sort of grafted on to the rest of the film. Like there's the Renfield story and then there's the Aquafina story. But the Aquafina story is also that same like kind of surface level question of are you going to be a hero? Are you going to do the right thing? Or are you going to essentially cave to peer pressure and look the other way when the mob wants to get away with something? That to me feels so simple that the assertion that the outside morality of the world beyond Dracula is confusing, read to me more as an attempt at comedy. And again, this movie is also supposed to be a comedy as well. I don't know that the humor necessarily worked for me. I think a lot of it is just very surface level, just going for the easy laugh, going for the easy line, going for the easy sight gag without really digging deep into why any of that might possibly be funny. Yeah, I mean... it doesn't have to be super serious about the morality of its of its central character. It mm-hmm. could just be content with taking this comic premise of Dracula not only as this 
age-old evil who uh, preys upon humanity, but also as a horrible boss who is constantly asking his underling to do demeaning things. Like that, I think, in itself is a reasonably sturdy premise to build a comedy around. And it doesn't have to be anything more than that. I would have... I, I can imagine a movie like this made by Edgar Wright, which is just really zippy, mm-hmm. has kind of the same energy as, as Shaun of the Dead, where there's kind of more weighty um, stuff in the margins that kind of just comes with the territory when you're telling a genre story like this. But the main focus is just it's funny to watch, you know, everyday schmoes deal with a zombie apocalypse or in this case a really, really old, hungry vampire who just can't help but see everything through the lens of who he wants to eat next. Mm -hmm. That can be funny. I don't think this movie is funny enough to go that route, though. It spends so much time with Aquafina's straight arrow cop that it seems like it really does want you to take its questions of morality and, and doing the right thing seriously... But it's hard to take it seriously because by the the end of the film, Aquafina is telling uh, Holtz Renfield, you know what, you seem like a pretty good guy, even though the, the, the film hasn't really done any of the work to explain why she would think that of him. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he's just the protagonist and he saved her life a couple of times. That's not a moral question. That's more just, you're my friend and I like you, which... Fair, you know, like, we want to think well of our friends, but when one of those friends is a century-old procurer of victims for a vampire, it seems like it should maybe be a little bit weightier. Mm -hmm. If it's not going to take that seriously, then it should probably just leave that to the side. It doesn't give Aquafina any comic business to do, though, so she's kind of just stuck being the conscience, and it doesn't go well. (laughs) She's sort of the conscience and also a bit of a Greek chorus character, which doesn't really seem to fit her on-screen persona particularly great. I think the piece that I keep getting hung up on with Renfield as a character is that um, he is our point of view character. We're kind of meant to see this world through his eyes, which is a really weird perspective to see this particular world because he's sort of an outsider and we're also brought into it through his voiceover. We spend a lot of time in his head we spend a lot of time getting to understand the fact that he feels really um, unworthy of existence within the world other than as a servant of Dracula. And that kind of gets into the bad boss theme of the movie as well. Nicholas Holtz Renfield is treated by the script of the movie as being a codependent character on Dracula. I don't buy this premise for a second because I don't read this as a codependent, all of the fault is on Renfield's character. I read this as an abusive relationship between Dracula and Renfield. And that to me feels as though it flips some of the responsibility for some of Renfield's actions more on Dracula. Yes, he chose to become Dracula's familiar at the very beginning, but the way that the movie treats their relationship I kept seeing as a character who kept trying to get out of an abusive relationship. And I don't think that the movie has the depth or the chops to be able to handle a relationship of that delicate nature in a way that does it justice. It keeps trying to undercut that with comedy. And every time it does it, it sort of deflates the seriousness of Renfield trying to get out of being Dracula's minion in a way that puts all of the personal responsibility on Renfield himself and not on Dracula for commanding him to do these things in the first place. I wonder if it's partly a problem of the movie biting off more than it can chew, no pun intended. <laughs> the The whole subplot with uh, Aquafina's, you know, straight arrow cop, the, you know, the last good cop in a totally corrupt department trying to bring down the mob feels like it's in there to sort of give the plot more momentum, but it really, it doesn't need it. And in fact, it kind of distracts from the central premise, which I'll, I'll say again, on paper sounds pretty sturdy. The The idea of, you know, taking the, uh, the relationship between a vampire and his familiar and kind of really digging deep into, 
you know, the specifics of that relationship, like what exactly that looks like in the day to day, like going out and getting victims, how he feels about that. Um, the, the, the element of, you know, how much of that is free will and how much of that is just him being dominated by somebody Mm -hmm. like that's, there's a lot of stuff to really dig into and mine comedy out of the specifics of that relationship. But because the film is spending so much time on this kind of half-baked crime mob story, really, it it doesn't compute at Mm -hmm. all. And it feels very perfunctory in some scenes where where it's literally characters sitting room going like, we've hacked some satellites now and now we can track Renfield. He's over there. (laughs) And then it's cutting, it literally cuts into the next scene. And that's, it feels like the, the movie is cobbling together all these different scenes and sequences, but it doesn't really know why it's doing it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think the, the screenplay is a huge culprit here for a lot of reasons, not just in the plotting, but also it's just not very funny. Mm -hmm. Like there's just not jokes or at least I didn't, I didn't think there were jokes. Maybe I was missing something. What did you think of the comic stylings of this film? I wasn't a fan of it because it felt as though the humor from the script was coming from just pushing everything as over the top as possible. So the crime family is a drug dealing set of crime lords who are looking to dominate New Orleans and to distribute cocaine, I suppose. And a lot of the humor from the crime family comes from just background decoration, set decoration, the fact that there are literal mountain bricks of cocaine just flying around everywhere. Um, And I don't know, I feel like just piling on more of something doesn't make it funnier necessarily. So some of the humor that did work for me in this movie was the incidental, slightly unremarked upon, it's in the background and then it's gone. There's not very much of it that did actually work for me, but there was a moment where somebody takes an impounded car from this crime family and it's got racing stripes that are literally just a wolf snorting cocaine. And it's just like that kind of over the top detail is something where you can tell that somebody in the art department was having a lot of fun that day. That I'm fine with because it's unremarked upon. But every time something is intended to be a joke that is the centerpiece of the movie, it feels as though the movie is just trying to push it over the top, nudge you in the ribs, explain the joke a little bit more, and try to tell you, hey, this is funny, without actually doing the work in order to make it funny. I did chuckle when Dracula enters Renfield's apartment, specifically because he has a welcome mat on the front door. Like, that's a nice <laughs> nod that's to a, some nice vampire lore. Fair enough. It's a good it's a good gag. It's also repeated a couple of times in a couple of different ways and every time that the joke is repeated that Dracula's able to enter somewhere because he's been invited in it just lost its power. So the initial version of the joke which was kind of understated and and left after it was said lost its power as soon as all of the other iterations showed up. Um I don't know, it just it's not very funny. It's not really much of a vampire movie either. Like, I don't know that this movie knows what it's trying to do. I think that there is a misplaced sense of reverence for the 1931 Dracula in particular. We watched that last Mm -hmm. year, and it was gratifying at first to see some of the shot-for-shot remakes with some of the same actors in the same situations all the way down to having the correct aspect ratio. Like those shots from Dracula that they recreate are actually shot in more of a square boxy format as opposed to the wider cinematic format that we see for the rest of the movie. But it's all reference without really understanding much of the source material, I think. And I don't think this movie understands what makes vampires as monsters powerful. And that alone makes me feel as though this movie doesn't really get the idea of a vampire movie it was just looking for something over the top and we'll give Nicolas Cage something hammy to chew on for an hour and a half I mean let's talk about uh the Nicolas Cage performance because I feel like that was what the movie was sold on Mm -hmm. you know in, in the in the pitch room or however this project came to be the whole idea was like what if Nicolas Cage was Dracula and I admit I was on board with that I thought that I think it's inspired casting um, and I, th- I'm curious to know whether you think it panned out. I, I mean, I don't think that the script necessarily gives him anything to work with. Mm-hmm. Cage is basically, uh, 
doing everything he can with his physicality and, and his his voice to just sort of like wring some sort of comedy out of this material on the page. Do you think he's successful in that? Successful enough, given the material that he's working with. I think I would have appreciated this movie more if it didn't keep getting distracted from the Dracula plot, because there is that crime family subplot. And eventually the two do come to a head, but it would have been a more compelling villainous turn by Cage if he had been able to dominate the screen a little bit more. He just disappears for long stretches of this movie. And every time he did, I had a hard time remembering that he was even an element in the story until he popped back up again as well, which is kind of a problem if you're dealing with Nicolas Cage playing Dracula. So he's doing what he can. I don't think the movie knows enough to be able to keep him in the spotlight or at least at the forefront of our minds when he's not physically on the screen and so it's a solid performance but it's not really served by the rest of the film yeah i think that's fair uh i i think i think in his effort to try to wring something out of this material i don't know that i would say it's a good performance in that I don't know it's hard to know how much blame to to lay on the fact that he just doesn't have anything to work with and how much of it is maybe uh him you know kind of straining after comedy and not really quite knowing how to get there Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'd call Cage a super talented comic actor I think he can he does comedy well Mm -hmm. um I don't know that he's somebody I think of when I think he's just just a funny guy on screen. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, he does best when he has material that allows him to do interesting and unexpected things with it. And I feel like here, I don't know that I saw him doing a whole lot of unexpected stuff other than just really mugging as hard as he could with those, you know, those fake teeth. Maybe it has to do with the register of the rest of the movie as well. Because when Nicolas Cage is funny and it really works, it's because he's working on a slightly different tilt from the rest of the film. And the rest of the film knows how to channel that energy into interesting and surprising places. I'm thinking of Raising Arizona. I'm thinking of Cage's turn in Moonstruck as well. He's able to be really funny when the rest of the movie knows when to rein back. And here, Renfield is working on that exact same register that Cage is working at. Maybe that has something to do with the pitch of Nicolas Cage's Dracula, and therefore everything else must also be at Nicolas Cage's level. And I think it doesn't really do Cage's performance all that many favors. It is interesting, though, because there are a couple of other performances that I think were a little bit more on the level of the movie, for better and for worse. So Ben Schwartz plays kind of a hapless like son of this crime family, and he's doing a lot here. Depending on how you feel about Ben Schwartz as a performer, you're, you'll either like it or you'll feel ambivalent towards it. I lean on the slightly more I'm into it, but that's because I like his character on Parks and Rec more than anything else. Um, Shorag Dashlu knows exactly what kind of a movie that she is in. And she is having a lot of fun when she is on screen as well. She's the crime boss. She's playing Ben Schwartz's mother. And I like her as a performer a lot. I would like to see her in a lot more quality things. But it was nice to see her having fun and also kind of reining back just a little bit more than I think everybody else was around her. I I really liked Schwartz's performance overall. I, I think he probably gets the best material to work with. There's a, a, mm. a, a an exchange kind of towards the climax between him and Renfield um, where you, you can tell that uh, this character is just really, he wants to prove himself. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, to prove himself, he thinks about giving himself over to Dracula the way that Renfield once did. And he tells Renfield, you're just half a husk. I'm the full husk of a person. (laughs) And I think that's really funny. And I think there's a germ of an interesting idea there too, just um, how Renfield uh, has been telling himself since his servitude began that the reason he engaged himself in Dracula's service was he is a husk of a person and he really didn't care about the things that 
really mattered. Hmm. And that's why he's where he is. And then we get that kind of contrasted with Schwartz's character where we get to see what's, what it is when somebody really doesn't care about anything except uh, giving themselves over solely to another person just to get a little bit more power, a little bit more affirmation. I think that's I think that's funny. It's uh, kind of a blink and you miss it moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never really comes up before then or it, it doesn't pay anything off and doesn't really go anywhere after that because the encounter ends soon after that. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed that moment for what it was. And I think a movie that would have really leaned into letting Cage kind of play this very dominating person who's also a little bit transparently uh, vain, Hmm. I think would have been really fun. There's an early scene where Dracula is sort of, he's reconstituting his body after a mishap with some vampire hunters at the very beginning of the film. And it's all, it's all grody. The, the makeup job is, is very nice, but the way that Cage carries himself as talking, he, you can tell like he's, he's, physically not doing very well <laughs> but he's got this such grandiosity in in the ideas that he's expressing the way he's you can tell that he's almost trying to carry himself with the, the swagger that he normally has but he just physically can't pull that off that's also really funny and i feel like a movie that would have really lent, lent into letting cage kind of play with the weirdness of of this being kind of being that way i think would have been a lot of fun. I guess there's just not enough Dracula in this Dracula movie, which is weird because why wouldn't you just lean all the way into that? It's not weird enough, and it also plays itself way too straight and surface level, and I think that that's the thing that disappoints me the most, is that if they had been willing to get weird, I think we could have gone into some much more interesting places than just, you have the choice between being a hero and a villain. And that is the only choice that is afforded to you. That it's just such a basic thing to give to somebody. It just, it feels like grade school morality in a movie that is incredibly gory. And also for people who appreciate, I don't know, like 1930s post-silent horror. And I don't really know who that movie is for necessarily. It certainly wasn't for me. Yeah, me neither. Listeners, that is our review of Renfield out this weekend. If you uh, have a chance to see it and have any thoughts about its morality, its comedy, or any combination of the two, let us know. You can tweet us at Pod on Twitter. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up over at Letterboxd. Our account over there is SeaBelievePod as well. We're going to be talking about a much better vampire movie in the second half of the show with our discussion of Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Stick around. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne, Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So now we're going to go to the conversation, which is the part of the show where we hear what all you listeners are thinking about the movies that we've been talking about. So this week, Kevin, on Twitter, um, I posed the question, because we're covering Renfield, which is an updated adaptation of Dracula, I said, we want to know, do you have any favorite unorthodox adaptations or sequels? So we heard back from Jordan and Micah McCaw, who have a movie podcast of their own, and they just responded back with Romeo plus Juliet, which I'm assuming is the Baz Luhrmann adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare has, uh, you know, he lends himself well to those sorts of 
uh, unorthodox interpretations. That's going to be my pick whenever we get to that part of the segment. <laughs> For sure. We also heard back from Ron Sturry. Welcome back to Twitter after Lent, Ron. Um, he responded with, I know this may be blasphemy to many, but I have great affection for City of Angels, while realizing it pales in comparison to Wings of Desire. Being a physician, the opening scene of a child dying in the trauma bay of an ER with an angel watching from the ceiling wrecked me. That's such, That's actually may have sold me on this movie. I haven't seen it yet. Wings of Desire is one of my favorites. And I've, I've had City of Angels on my radar, partly because it's also another Nicolas Cage film. So another connection to Renfield there. On theme for sure. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? Do you have a favorite unorthodox? I mean, I, I tease just now. It's got to be Kurosawa's Ron. You know, mm. Samurai, King Lear, my favorite Shakespeare play, my favorite director, I love me a samurai movie and there's it, it's it's my pick because you know King Lear is a great play but I think that Ron draws things out of King Lear that uh, I hadn't really thought about quite as much until I'd actually seen the film and I think that that's the mark of a, a really great unorthodox adaptation is that it kind of shows you the original afresh in a way. Mm, yeah, that's a really good pick. I was thinking about going with Stalker for this one, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and have a twofer. Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky is an adaptation of Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky brothers, which is a really good book in its own right. They're very different stories, but speaking of Shakespeare... I may have to go with 10 Things I Hate About You as an adaptation mm. of Taming of the Shrew. I okay. love that movie. I think it kind of captures the spirit of the story. And I also am kind of a sucker for Shakespeare movies that are retold as teen films as made popular in the late 90s and early aughts. Fair enough. And, you know, if you're ever not really in the mood for a three-hour epic by Tarkovsky, you know, it, that gives you some wiggle room. You can go one way or the other. Yeah, de definitely. And you can't go wrong with Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger either. <laughs> one of the other things that we talked about over on Twitter over the Easter weekend was uh, Easter weekend movies. So we had Twitter user Servant. Uh, tweeted at us asking for good Easter weekend movie recommendations. You can see that exchange on Twitter if you would like. But then they responded back after having gone and taken a look at some of these movies over the course of the weekend um, and wrote up a few thoughts about their time watching movies last weekend. So they said, first of all, thank you for all your work and insight on seeing and believing. And at Think Christian, I began my journey down the film rabbit hole during the last few years after realizing I had access to a bunch of film libraries through my school. Here in my small city in Canada, it was hard to find people to talk to about movies and even harder to find Christians who would engage with them. Your show is continuously encouraging to me that it's not strange to have this hobby and that there are ways to critically engage with popular media. So a huge thank you. And then they went on and thank you for that. That's really lovely. It's that is probably my favorite kind of thing to hear is just that, you know, somebody who's to hear from somebody who's, you know, dipping their toes into cinephilia or is kind of continuing the next steps along that journey and uh, seeing and believing being a part of that in some way is just really gratifying to hear. So thanks so much for writing in and letting us know that. We're really thankful and pleased and flattered that uh, you found our recommendations helpful. Yeah, and your former co-host Wade may also be pleased with some of the movies that they watched this weekend because uh, the two picks were A Hidden Life and then also Stop Making Sense, which I know is a favorite of Wade's. It's certainly a favorite of mine. It's a good one. Wade, if you're listening, we never forget you. We've got you covered whenever Stop Making Sense applies. <laughs> Definitely. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now it's time for the watch list. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then talk about it. So Sarah, you were quivering with anticipation over <laughs> this one because Near Dark is a film that's near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you had this one kind of 
in the chamber waiting for just the right moment to spring it on the watch list. And here we are this week. Uh, this is Catherine Bigelow's 1987 Western slash vampire movie slash maybe a little bit of road movie. Bigelow's Creatures of the Night haunt the country roads, truck stops, and motels of the dusty American West where the wide open spaces are just spacious enough for them to feast and then hit the road before the consequences catch up with them. At the beginning of the film, a young man named Caleb unwittingly falls in with their outlaw band and has to figure out how to extricate himself if he even wants to after getting a taste of the dark freedom that they have to offer. So, Sarah, there's uh, a lot of genre stuff going on in this film. There's some plot going on here, too, but I'm actually curious to kick off our discussion of this, since this is a film that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, writing about as well. You've written about this for at least Brightwall Dark Room, if not mm -hmm. other outlets. Definitely for them. I, I've talked about it enough on Twitter that that might also count as an essay in itself. <laughs> so uh, given that all that thought has gone into this film, I'm going to go a little bit deeper with my kickoff question than maybe we often do with the Watchlist segment, just because I feel like you're going to have a good answer for this. So if I were to ask you, if I were to challenge you mm -hmm. to describe in, say, a sentence what this movie is about, not what happens in this movie, mm -hmm. but what this movie is about, what would you say? Near Dark is about the corrosive nature of exploitation, specifically in the form of settler colonialism in the American West. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Please elaborate. Definitely happy to do so. So in, in terms of the vampire pantheon, it's kind of a funky movie because it does do a lot of that genre bending. And I think that's where a lot of the thematic power of this movie comes from. Usually the vampire is a solitary creature somebody from outside the borders of whatever country or city that the the main characters are from, they're an interloper and they're trying to take over and they're doing it from the edges. Here, the vampires are completely homegrown. They're very American. They're kind of high plains drifters. Some of them style themselves almost as cowboys and they're very romanticized, or at least they romanticize themselves. From the outside, they're not nearly as attractive looking necessarily. But these are characters who are willing to come into a town, take whatever they want, strip it of its resources, usually the lifeblood of somebody else, and then keep moving on on their way. And they feel that they can do that because it is their right to do so, because they want to maintain the sense of freedom that they get outside of rules and control under the cover of night. And so that maps kind of in interesting ways on the history of our taking over of the American West as a country. And I think that Catherine Bigelow is doing some interesting stuff, not just with the themes of the movie, but also with the aesthetics of it. She's not necessarily directly invoking that history of the region in the movie, but it's very much there on the screen. And there's a scene, I want to say about midway through the movie, where May, one of the vampires played by Jenny Wright, and Caleb, our main character, are standing in the middle of an oil field. And Caleb isn't willing to hunt for himself. He's been bitten by a vampire, but he has not fully turned yet. He's unwilling to kill. And so May has to keep feeding him from her own blood after she's killed somebody else. And it's almost as though he Caleb is sidestepping the responsibility that he has for the death of somebody else in order to sustain him, because at this point, he can only live off other people's blood. But he's going to allow somebody else to do that dirty work for him. And as he's sucking the blood out of her wrists, they're kind of standing in amongst these oil derricks that are pulling the oil out of the ground. It's another form of exploitation in a way. And I think it's it's a powerful moment because it's complicated. It's not just a case of Caleb is feeding for May. She is also caring for him. And it's also a painful act for her all at the same time. Um, and the movie doesn't go too far, I think, in romanticizing their relationship. But maybe we can get into that once we get into your read of the film. Well, well, that, that moment also uh, ends with 
uh, her kind of shoving him off because he's he's starting to drain her dry um, mm-hmm. in in his hunger, and uh, I think that's maybe also a telling moment as well that he's not willing to kill. He doesn't want to uh, get his hands dirty, so to speak, but he's every bit as capable of gorging himself uh, at somebody else's expense. Uh, he just doesn't want to do the messy stuff. And that, I think, is is telling. And maybe th- one of the the better things about this film is how it kind of lets those things lie like with a light touch it doesn't put a heavy point on any of these thematic elements that you've mentioned Mm -hmm. um but they're kind of floating around there and i feel like at least watching this for the first time that tangerine dream score is maybe my favorite part of the film because it does contribute to this um I don't want to say it's not a nightmare. It's not nightmarish music, um, but it contributes kind of this feeling that these this band of vampires are kind of they're sort of floating on this ocean of night. They they talk about night and darkness all the time and how uh, how much it how meaningful it is to them and how they kind of draw sustenance from from it. Um, but there's kind of this unreality to to them as well that they don't exist during the daytime. They don't really build relationships with anyone. The fact that um, May does form this relationship with Caleb is very unusual um, in the context of this film. And the other vampires think it's very strange and and. Uh, untoward to say the least that she would even bring in an outsider into their little little enclave and that i think that kind of sense of just being disconnected being kind of borne along by the currents of circumstance is really interesting um and makes the moments where we do get these shocking moments of violence all the more effective Mm -hmm. yeah they're a group of people who are held together by their own selfishness as opposed to any loyalty towards each other they band together because they have to but doesn't really feel as though any of them have much affection for each other except for maybe lance henriksen and jeanette goldstein's characters um Jesse and Diamondback. They're kind of the team mom and dad of the group almost, but it also feels very perfunctory on their end as well, Um, which I find kind of fascinating because we also have like half the cast of aliens in this movie. And the dynamic between all of these characters in Near Dark is very different than the camaraderie that you get in Aliens as well. And both would have been filmed right around the same time. There's actually a fleeting shot in the background when Caleb is stumbling down the street trying to get home of a movie theater marquee. And mm-hmm. Aliens is actually on the sign. I, I noticed that. That was a fun little detail. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. So, yeah, I, I find this group of people to be so interesting because they are so insular and they are so divorced from anything outside of them, outside of society. And yet they are still very much of a kind with like the rugged individualism that we tend to romanticize in Western movies in particular. I think it's it's common in, in movies where there are multiple vampires, you know, vampires who congregate together. Um, it seems like it's, it's very common for these films, for the vampires to be very philosophical about, about their, their existence, about who they are, why they do what they do, their view of themselves, their view of humanity, the relationship between them. Are you thinking of the Twilight movies specifically? Uh, I was actually thinking of Anne Rice vampires. Oh, but, fair uh, enough. But, you know, like, the, you know, the original angst vampires. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, the, it's it's common for um, for these sorts of movies where there's, you know, vampires living in community to kind of, like, lean into that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's actually... Um, something that's very interesting about vampires is that they can be so there, there is the room for them to be very introspective about who they are and what they are. Mm. Um, but Bigelow's vampires are much more like the Western hero. They, they don't talk very much, uh, when, when they do like the, the most talkative, uh, member of the band is Bill Paxton Severin, who is 
great. Oh, I yeah. love Bill Paxton in this movie. Good. Um, and but he's he's all he's all bluster. Uh, he's again kind of the the braggadocio of of a Western hero. But there's there's not really any one of them that has is sort of more. Who who intellectualizes their fate? They're they're sort of like we we do what we need to do, and we like what we're doing, but if any of them have had to sort of make their peace morally with what they're doing, they don't show it. Mm-hmm. If any of them have have felt the need to sort of spell out for themselves why it's good for them to be doing what they're doing, it's not clear. It's just this is who we are and this is what we do. And it's self-evident that this is what should happen because we do whatever we want. They they explicitly say that. Mm-hmm. And that also feels very simpatico with the ethos of a Western where it's sort of like the there is no law except the law of the individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, these vampires are an embodiment of that and the monstrousness of that. Yeah, yeah. May even explicitly tells Caleb, you have to, you don't think about anything. You just go by instinct. That's the only way that you're able to hunt. And he's never able to let go of that ability to see other people as people. Um, Even when he's scared, even when it's, you know, potentially at the threat of him losing his own life, he still can't go through with it. Um, And that's the one thing that's, keeping his hold on humanity and also the main source of the friction between him and the other vampires in the group. Um, Like you said, Bill Paxton is amazing in this. He's also one of the scariest villains I think I've ever seen because Mm. he's willing to lean into that individualism and because he's clearly enjoying himself when he's doing it. I think when most people talk about Near Dark, they talk about a very specific scene in which the vampires invade a roadside bar and then proceed to kill everybody within the bar with the express intent of eating them. And Severin kind of takes point on that by first going up to the bar, insulting the bartender, insulting one of the patrons. And he's doing it because he knows that's the best possible way to get a rise out of somebody and because he knows that he can beat any of them in a fight and none of those people know it either. He's got an unfair advantage and he's willing to make use of it and he's going to have fun while he's doing it. And I find that scene to be one of the most upsetting parts about this movie. It's also one of the best pieces of filmmaking I think Catherine Bigelow's ever done because of the way that she edits it, the way that she stages it, the way that you can feel the tension start to ratchet up basically as soon as the vampires walk through that door but she keeps tightening the screws until it gets almost unbearable. And then Severin keeps tightening those even more. How did you feel about that? I scene? mean, there's a good reason why everyone talks about that scene is it's just a bravura bit of filmmaking. It's a great sequence. Um, I, the way that it ramps up, not just the tension, but also just kind of the momentum of things. Like it starts off kind of quiet and you know, Severin is a sadist. He's kind of he wants he wants to play with his food, mm-hmm. um, and so there's there's the the Hitchcockian suspense of the bomb is under the table. You know it's going off. You just don't know exactly when, and that gives the whole scene this this really uncomfortable and yet thrilling charge. And as the uh, violence begins to to ramp up, and as we kind of begin to pick up speed towards the the conclusion that we know is coming Mm -hmm. bigelow kind of starts by having various patrons at different corners of the bar and kind of always you know making sure that she cuts away to them um at intervals that are off enough that we don't forget they're there but uh they don't really have any uh effect on like the the single uh one-on-one interaction so when bill paxton corners one patron up against a wall and steals his sunglasses. We know that there's uh, at least three other people in the room who are seeing this happen. Um, besides who, the vampires. Be- besides the vampires. Yeah. Three humans who are seeing this happen. And yet they don't say anything. Bigelow doesn't... There's not a whole lot of chaos in the scene. It's all very 
very tightly controlled, and yet she'll occasionally cut away to the scene of somebody who's watching it who's just utterly frozen in fear. I think that that's, it's a really great example of a filmmaker's instinct for when less is more. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's no screaming. There's not a lot of gushing blood or, or, or fighting. There's just people kind of frozen in fear waiting for their turn next. And so when Bill Paxson goes up on the bar and goes after the bartender, uh, you've got that low angle shot of him just looming over the bartender and he's moving fast now. Mm-hmm. And it's very scary. Yeah. 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 And I think, in contrast with one of the other set pieces that most people tend to talk about, which is kind of a shootout at a motel mm-hmm. in the aftermath of this scene, you do get a lot of that chaos and not really being sure what's going on. And I think that that underlines the relationship between everybody who's trapped within that motel, because all of them are the vampires. And in their minds, at this point, it's everyone for themselves. Um, they've been holed up. They've gone to ground after one of the patrons from the bar managing to escape and alert the local authorities. They know that the cops are coming and they just need to find a place to hide in the daylight because if they're out in the sun, they will catch fire and explode, which would be a problem for them. Um, (laughs) And that tension and the stakes of what will happen if the vampires go outside gets heightened when the police do finally show up. They surround the bungalow that all of the vampires are in. And you get the sense from some of the shots establishing the scene that all of these vampires are kind of scattered to different corners of the bungalow. No, I don't think anybody's actually in bed. There's some people who are kind of holed up and curled up in chairs. Someone's in a bathtub. And they're all isolated and they're all backed into a corner. And then as soon as the police show up, everybody scatters into other corners with their guns. And once the guns start firing, there are like lances of sunlight that Mm -hmm. come into the bungalow that start to separate all of these vampires from each other. And it's a boundary, but it's a boundary, probably the only boundary that none of these vampires are willing to cross. And it's something that is kind of keeping them all fighting on their own, unwilling to work together because they're not good at doing that even on the best of nights for them. Um, I think it's a great way to show those relationships without having to tell us anything about them because it's purely visual and it's also the core of a really good action scene, I think. Even though there isn't a ton of one-on-one physical fighting that's happening there, there's still stuff happening on screen and you can't see all of it except for those rays of light and then shots of people being very scared that they are going to die because the authorities have finally caught up with them. Well, and and what Western worth at salt wouldn't have a shootout at some point, you know, obviously mm-hmm. you have to have that. It's also uh, probably the most original vampire genre moment of the entire film. I haven't seen any other film where there's a shootout and simply the holes that the bullets leave behind are a bigger danger to the vampires than the projectiles themselves because that's how the sun gets in is through those holes. Mm-hmm. And the longer the shooting goes on, the more sunlight gets in and you know it's just a matter of time. Not because they're going to get riddled with bullets and fall down, but because there's eventually going to be nowhere else for them to hide from the sun itself. I think that's that's a really great moment. And I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. I, I think it's also one of the f- few parts of the film where the film benefits from the specifics of the rules. Hmm. I, if I, maybe if I have one quibble with this film, it's Hmm. that I don't know that they're like the, the actual rules do the, the film any favor, like specifically how long a vampire can be in sunlight before they actually catch on fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems a little bit, a little bit wibbly wobbly. Mm Um, the, the specific, uh, like, how quickly the sun can rise seems to fluctuate. So, like, quibbles like that aside, though, I think that that shootout is a part of the film where Bigelow has established the rules very clearly. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the way that she realizes that shootout specifically on screen is is really well done and contributes to how effective it is. That's funny. I haven't thought about the difference in timing across 
the rest of the movie. I guess that that hasn't really bothered me. I do have a bit of a quibble with this movie, and I think I've managed to reason it away a little bit just because I love the rest of it so much. Um, but for me, it's the central romance between yeah. Caleb and May. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it feels a little bit perfunctory. It's a little bit difficult to understand why May would be interested in Caleb in the first place, I think. And I think that that's fine because the romance isn't really the point, at least not between these two characters. It's more about Caleb falling into a group of people who are so dangerously individualistic that they simply do not care about the consequences of their actions to anybody else around them, or at least that's the way that I read it. I'm curious to know where you land. I mean, I think this is, uh, I mean, you're, you're not wrong. I do think that the, the central romance is so under, underwritten and underperformed that it kind of, it doesn't really, it doesn't feel fully realized. Um, I, it didn't end up being a fatal flaw for me mostly again going back to that tangerine dream score mm. i think the the dreaminess of that music and kind of the the way that their initial flirtation with each other kind of just it 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 almost they they almost move and talk as if they're in a dream mm. and i feel like that kind of i'm i'm able to explain in a way like it doesn't feel plausible in the way that you know real people with real emotions would actually become interested in one another but if it kind of follows a sort of dreamy weird there, there's something drawing us together that we can't even articulate to ourselves i can kind of hand wave it away and go like i it, it seems of a piece with an with an atmospheric choice that bigelow is making and so the the narrative and character specifics of how plausible that romance is maybe might be beside the point slightly. That initial meet cute does work for me on one level. And I think that's because Bigelow keeps shifting the perspective from one character to the other. There isn't kind of like an omniscient third party watching. We first join the scene with Caleb and he sees a girl that he just as knows that he wants to romance. And then we switch to her and if you know the story, you know that she's a vampire and that she is actually on the hunt and she's trapping him as much as he thinks he's trapping her. So I think that might also add a little bit to the dreaminess of the scene is sometimes it can be a little bit hard to nail down who is thinking what at a given time because sometimes it's one character's perspective and sometimes it's another. But I agree with you. I think that the atmosphere really, really works for this Yeah, movie. and I'm the the visuals go a long way to towards that as well of course uh any vampire movie where there's lots of vampires you have to have them cresting a hill and having you know being backlit with a lot of smoke the shadows moving in out like you got to have a shot like that and bigelow pulls that off here with flying colors a lot of good silhouettes in this movie not just that shot that you described but also caleb riding into town to rescue his younger sister from the vampires um he's on Another horseback great western moment it's fantastic and the horse even balks at a tumbleweed but it's not like a something that kind of goes uncommented on i think it's also bigelow pointing out like this is also a modernized town and it's a shipping center um and I, th I find it kind of interesting that she's got all of those Western textures layered on top of a location that feels really, really realistic to me. There are a lot of truck stops in this movie and a lot of crossroads and a lot of people who are just kind of passing through and just getting by. And it feels very lived in, even though we don't really meet anybody outside of the vampire clan. Yeah, it's texture is another reason why I would say this film works is it does feel like the truck stops that they're at, the motels that they go to, the the dive bar that they they attend, it's it definitely seems plausible that there's not anything else around for miles and miles. And I mean, if you've ever driven through Texas, yeah, or at least certain parts of Texas, you know that it seems deserted out there sometimes. And I think that that also contributes to the the spooky desolation that this film can have in its best moments mm -hmm. absolutely it really captures the feeling of being in great plains states i think i was actually kind of scared to introduce this movie to the watch list segment because i love it so much and it's one that is very near and dear to my heart so i'm yeah. glad that you liked it no no guts no glory or <laughs> or in this case there is guts and glory 
<laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Near Dark. If you had a chance to catch up with this, we mentioned last week that it's a little bit hard to find Near Dark mm-hmm. on streaming and on physical release. Sarah, fortunately, you had it on physical release, so I was actually able to watch it. <laughs> I have a DVD copy. First time I ever watched it, I watched with a DVD copy from the Chicago Public Library. So if you're interested in it, your library system may also have it as well. Tough to find, but definitely worth the hunt if you can get a hold of it. That'll do it for this week's Watchlist segment and this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.